millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mary Petruchio, I begin to wonder if Alice Wedleberry is true of all. I say no. And therefore, for assurance, let's each one send unto his wife. And he whose wife is most obedient to come the moment he hath sent for her shall win the wager which we will propose. Content! What was the wager? Two hundred crowns. Two hundred crowns? I'll venture so much on my hawk and hound, but twenty times so much upon my wife. So be it then. Four thousand crowns. Content. Content. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. That was the actor Richard Burton playing the part of Petruchio in the 1967 movie version of Taming of the Shrew. That is the place where Petruchio places a bet that he has the most obedient of wives and we on today's show are going to find out if in fact he is right. Welcome to the fifth and final act of William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew in which Kate is finally and... um willingly question mark tamed by petruchio my name is tim mcintosh i'm nora ankrum i'm matt bianco and we're so glad you joined us for the penultimate episode of the taming of the shrew we're going to do a question and answer episode in one week in which you are going to hurl insults at me uh at anyone else whose opinion you disagree with And those insults are going to be cleverly worded so as to have a question mark at the end and appear to be a question. And we're going to attempt to answer your insults. That's what we're going to attempt to do. Okay, you guys, we're at the end of The Taming of the Shrew. And this this very kind of convoluted side plot at the end uh, or, or at the beginning of Act One, the side plot being about Lucentio and Bianca. That gets resolved when Lucentio stops being disguised as Bianca's teacher and he rushes off to the church to get married. Soon after that, 
Lucentio's real father shows up and, um, you know, sees Lucentio, they fall into each other's arms. He meets Bianca for the first time, but the, the whole play culminates with this grand feast in which all of the married and marrying parties, um, show up and it's kind of the re-entry of Kate and Petruchio into society. They've kind of been off at Petruchio's manor. And during this time, Petruchio has been attempting to tame Kate. We talked last week in act four about how pretty, like pretty vile his taming efforts were. And yet Kate kind of willingly question mark goes along with his taming school efforts. And now in the final act, everything is kind of like comes to a head and everyone's kind of teasing Petruchio. Oh, you married a shrew. Woe is you. And Petruchio places a bet. We heard that bet at the very top of the show. And we're going to find out once and for all whether or not Kate is indeed tamed. And you can't do a summary like that and put such provocative language in there, like <laughs> vile taming techniques, when I clearly don't agree with that. Okay, you're absolutely. That's fair. Were the taming techniques, how would you describe them, Matt? Question, yeah. Questionable. Yeah. I would say they were successful, <laughs> useful. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> Loving, I, um, except for the horse thing. I mean, the horse loving, thing, you know, whatever. But whatever. Matt, do you mind recounting what those taming techniques were? Let's just get the facts on the table before we start getting into interpretation. Look, Grammar before logic. The horse fails her, and then he he. <laughs> The horse, the, the we're horse blaming the horse her. now. <laughs> no, listen, the, I'm not, no, I'm not blaming the horse. The horse fails her, and then he lovingly goes after the man who chose such a faulty horse, out of love and protection of her. <laughs> Among I mean, other things, I, there are other things he could have done to show that love, but he chose that. And you know, I mean, mm. it, 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 mm. it did. How how would you describe Kate's um, diet during their time <laughs> at Petruchio's Manor? Matt, I mean, not to dwell on it too Fires. much, but he protected her from eating trash. Oh, 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 yeah. He was dissatisfied. The he food protected was her from wearing trash. Uh -huh. He protected her from having trash sleep. Have you seen the commercials? Trash she was going to have sleep. junk sleep, and he, she was going to have junk sleep, and he protected her from it. <laughs> That's what I see. <laughs> and, I'm only, and, and I'm only, and I'm not, I'm only kind of joking. To be fair. <laughs> Okay, I, I'm I'm wanting to race to the end because, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because this famous closing monologue is Kate's reply to whether or not she is in fact the most obedient of wives. Okay, I really want to get there, but we can't jump the gun. I have a question before we get to that question. And the question is this, we started the whole play with Christopher Sly, a drunken... Um, barroom brawler who stumbles out into the street, passes out, is taken by a nobleman to his house, and then he, as a joke, the nobleman and his household pretend as if 
Christopher Sly is in fact the aristocrat of the manor and they act as his servants and they bring him his food. And then this play that we've been talking about, The Taming of the Shrew, is enacted for Christopher Sly. And Christopher Sly kind of disappears for a little bit and then he comes back at the end of act one and makes some comments about the play. And now here we are at the end of act five. I was fully expecting a bookend appearance by Christopher Sly. We get nothing. We don't see the opening with the kind of aristocrats revealing to Christopher Sly, hey, gotcha, you know, you're still (laughs) like a a, a peasant and we're still the aristocrats and we're the aristocrats' house. Um, None of that happens. Christopher Sly just disappears. That whole storyline disappears. Is that a shortcoming by our author? No. No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's Shakespeare, right? Like, I'm not going to say he has shortcomings. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think I, I kind of have a theory about the Christopher Sly thing. We, we've talked about it a little bit about um, holding up the mirror, right, to uh, to the society or to to Christopher Sly as a, a picture of society, right? And maybe maybe Shakespeare just doesn't want to be too heavy-handed with it. How would he be too heavy-handed, Nora? Uh, by coming back at the end and saying, "You see, this is like what you do. Don't be like this." Oh, 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 oh. that's good. I, that's a, that's yeah. that's what I was thinking too. Like, uh, if he connects the dots at the end, then it it use it heavy-handed. I was going to say preachy, right? It's like it's yeah. it might be too much. I'm, I, the only reason I hesitate to like by that completely is because if anybody can do it without being heavy handed, it would be Shakespeare. Um, there's probably not a whole lot of very many authors that I would trust to do it, but Shakespeare's probably one that I would. Nonetheless, I do think that that would be a danger, right? Is that if he brings Sly back and connects all the dots, like you said, Nora, if he says, this is, see, this is you, um, then uh, it's, it's, it would be too much. And this is, this gives him the, freedom to trust his audience and let them see it for themselves. But and it doesn't bother you, like just the lack of symmetry. I mean, I want it. I definitely, yeah. I, I was like you, Tim, I fully expected to have it bookended. Yeah. Um, and it was not, and I was, I was a little disappointed. Um, but I think, you know, by way of explanation, but also, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't he be in danger a little bit of uh, offending some of his potential uh, patrons with this? How so? Possibly. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, is he also holding the mirror up to them as well? And so maybe that's another reason to get a little distance uh, from the story itself. We talked about the sly device uh, being used to give Shakespeare a little bit of distance mm-hmm. uh, from his own day. Right. Yeah. Uh, from the treatment of people or the, or the the nature of attitudes or whatever in his own day. And maybe this is uh, this is another another opportunity for him to say something artistically, but, uh, to have, have a little protection from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Matt, what do you think about that? Um, I, well, I think, I think that's right. I mean, it, the, the distance part of it with the, you know, with respect to particular people or patrons, whatever audience members, um, for sure. Also the expectation, right? Like I think everybody expects it to come back around, 
to Christopher Sly. Anybody who ever reads this would expect that. Um, so I don't, I don't disagree with you that it's, that it's um, desirable, you know, in for readers, mm. um, but the, it's the fact that it's not there is what drives the question then why is it not there and what role does it play? And I think, I think, which is kind of sad, right? Because so many people then don't know how to answer that question, I guess. And so then they just drop it and they just leave it off. Mm-hmm. Right. When they, in the performances, but. Oh, like they don't include it in the beginning even. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Right. right. They, they, yeah, you know, yeah, they drop yeah. the beginning. Um, but it, it, I mean, it, it seems to, 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 it seems to play a role. And, and I think as we, as you were suggesting, or because of the, because there's a mirror, there's the mirror aspect there, then we can see the mirror aspect here. And so mm-hmm. it plays even a hermeneutical role. Like it gives us a kind of a governing hermeneutic or right something. So the fact that it gets dropped off at the beginning is problematic, but I wonder if you would even, uh, yeah, if, if it's because it's not included at the end, it both makes it easier to do that, but also creates the curiosity of people as to why, and then mm. helps us to see what its purpose might have actually been. Uh, mm. I say hesitatingly, because I don't really know. <laughs> Coming back to Act 5, um, everyone arrives by the end of Scene 1 of Act 5. There's hijinks. There's all sorts of misunderstandings. But when Petruchio and Kate kind of finally arrive, we know that we've arrived at the conclusion of our story. Um, Kate is out of the room during the banquet. Petruchio is kind of holding court, being teased by the other men that are sitting around the banquet table. And um, the feast is being held by Lucentio. It's partly to apologize for him deceiving everybody throughout most of the play, but it's also they're celebrating three marriages. He has married to Bianca, Petruchio, and Kate have been married. And now Hortensio is being married to a woman that he hadn't met before. Everybody's married and everybody's happy and everybody is enjoying the feast. And so this is when we hear um, Petruchio kind of state his bet that he has the most obedient wife. And now there are all these other wives that are kind of around. And he makes this claim. Someone takes up his wager and increases the wager. And he calls Kate in and Kate gives her very famous closing monologue. I I, want to hear that audio. So this is Elizabeth Taylor from the 1967 movie playing Kate. She's coming in, answering the call of Petruchio about who is the most faithful wife. Unnipped that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frost to bite the maids. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor, both by sea and land. To watch the night in storms, the day in cold, while thou liest warm at home, secure and safe. He craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, 
and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty the subject owes the prince. Even such a woman owes to her husband. When she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul, contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? Come, throwing unable worms. Come, my mind hath been as big as one of yours. My heart is great, my reason happy more to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws. Come and place your hands below your husband's foot, in token of which duty, if he please. My hand is ready. May it do him ease. Why, there's a wish. Come on and kiss me, Kate. Even such a woman oweth to her husband, and when she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving lord? That's right in the middle of Kate's speech. So, okay, you guys, traditionally, every Shakespearean comedy ends with marriages. And there's a sense that they're like, we are supposed to leave as an audience member with a sense of joy. We're supposed to be happy and satisfied. To what extent do you agree that we are like leaving with a sense of joy regarding this play, Taming of the Shrew. Matt, I'm, I'm coming to you first, man. Do you walk away from this play thinking, yeah, I'm happy. I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. The right thing has been done. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, I want to hear I it. I want to hear it, Matt. I do, for reals. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a romantic. I don't mean that. I don't. Nec- I don't know if I mean that in the in the like capital R romantic. Right. Sense, right, right. But I mean, I'm a romantic in the sense that like, I don't know. I'm a little R romantic. And as we talked about on the last the last episode, I believe in love. Nora, we're not sure about yet. The look. Look. I when when I meet Kate right from the very beginning, I want Kate. I want Kate to have what she doesn't have. I want her to be in, I want her to fall in love. I want her to have somebody who cares for her. I want her to have somebody that she cares about. And I want her to be at peace with herself and her relationships. And in the end, that's where she is. She gets all that. Now, 
the, here's the, I, like, I recognize the problem. I'm not, you know, I'm not blind to it. Um, Can I, I add I, one more thing though, Matt? Let's remember. You say vile. I'm gonna. Let's remember how vile Kate's behavior was at the beginning. No, I, okay, I, that's I, good, I, that's I good. walked good with there, you. Yeah. How yeah. vile Kate's behavior was in the first two acts, especially like she's hard to bear, man. She's right. hard to bear. So right. I'm just trying to like help you make your case. Please yeah, because she is right. And but but I also feel like I also feel like like either she's that way for a reason and I want that reason fixed. And I think love will fix that reason. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, um, or she just is that way because she's not herself. Like she's not who she ought to be. And then love will fix that. Right. Either way. Right. Love is the answer. Love is all we ever need. All we really need. Um, I don't know if I actually want to quote that song here, but anyways, the, um, so the, so, so I, that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I think we see at the end there. Except unless the big problem, right? The one issue, I mean, the one issue I can see with my eyes is that if, if you take this as like, like this is Marine boot camp or something where they tear you down so that they can build you back mm-hmm. up and they just tore her down. And like, if he just tears her down and then leaves her there and now she's some sort of automaton and mindless zombie, um, just always only ever saying and doing what Mm -hmm. he wants her to say and do that's a problem right that's then she's not really her she's not really herself um but i don't see it that way like i see her i see her um i don't know i feel like i see her being somebody who is capable or, or really does genuinely love him and i think one of the one of the things that that Shakespeare gives us one of the clues that Shakespeare gives us that she's not an automaton. Um, and I would love to hear what you guys think about this, but the, when she, when he says, kiss me, Kate, and she says in the streets, Mm. and then he's like, are you ashamed? And she says not to kiss you, but to do it in the streets. Right. Mm. Like there's a place where she's not being an automaton, even Mm -hmm. though that that's the point in the play where she should be. And there's a place where she's standing her ground and then they, you know, they have, and then it ends with her saying, or with it, with her kissing him in the street. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's even there, like what initially embarrasses her, embarrasses her and she's willing to say no, comes around and she's like, no, you know what? I'm actually not embarrassed with you to do this. And she does. So I don't know. I think, she, I think there's a clue there that she's not fully an automaton. So I don't buy that particular view. I see her as somebody who's genuinely come to love him, which is the whole thing that I've been, I had been rooting for from the beginning. Right. So I am left with a final sense of joy. So also the other guys get their come up because Bianca's not that cool. Right. They all, yeah. They all that's a good point. Like, I like that too. That's a good point. Yeah. Bianca turns out to not be quite as cool as she appears. Well, She's set up in juxtaposition to Kate, and so she appears by juxtaposition cooler, but she's got her own problems, I guess, is the easiest way to say it. So, man, it seems to me like a lot of your case kind of hinges upon the belief that Petruchio genuinely loves her. You know, like, I mean, wouldn't, would you say that your case falls apart if Petruchio is just pleased to have tamed her but doesn't really love her? Uh, oh, I see. If, if, yes, my case, my case also depends on him being genuinely in love with her at the end, yeah. not the beginning, at the end. Right, 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 right. I think right. he learns to love her. She learns to love him. Um, and then they both love each other at the end. And if there was some evidence in the text that he does not really love her at the end, 
then uh, yeah that would yeah suck. the legs under <laughs> your pants get a little suck. wobbly <laughs> that would be awful it would make me not like to play i'd be with nora like no i'm never performing this play. Yeah. <laughs> i mean i just the last line that i read and graceless traitor to her loving lord i to your point matt read that as genuine as she sees him as genuinely loving her yeah um, I guess the question is, does genuine love manifest itself in the way that it manifests that his, the, in the ways that he acted in acts three and four? That's the big question for me, but I, I, I don't want to go too far down that road yet. So Nora, I'm, I want to ask you the same question. We're supposed to feel happy at the end of a comedy. This is supposed to be satisfying. You know, all the loose ends are tied up. How do you feel having completed this play? (laughs) Um, Well, I actually agree with Matt a lot more than (laughs) I do a lot, a lot more than maybe, maybe he would have expected. Um, But, uh, but I have my own thoughts about it. I'm not an automaton. No, I am not tamed. No. And I don't, I don't think Kate is either. And that, and that is why I would have a sense of satisfaction or joy at the end is because I, I don't think she is um, tamed. I think she is uh, uh, the best version of herself probably. Um, but I think that uh, it's, it's been a, she has a journey to get there. Right. Um <clears throat> I, I was thinking of the same passage where he says, kiss me. And she says here in the street. Um, and I, mm. I thought that that was an indicator that, um, that she really did love him and that he really does love her. Um, I still think he has a ways to go by the end of this play. I think if we're looking for Kate's redemption, we found it, but I don't know that we've got Petruchio's yet. I don't know that that's uh, a given, but if there is a sense of dissatisfaction, I would say it's with the other couples. Um, because they seem like they're in a bit of trouble at the end. What Um, kind of trouble do you see between Lucentio and Bianca? Yeah. Well, I see Lucentio, um, really wanting this, uh, lording over her that Petruchio appears to have Mm. over Kate, which I, I kind of think it's a ruse that the two of them are putting on together. Um, that Kate and Petruchio are putting on. I don't think it's legitimate. She's not obedient like that. She's not a dog to be called or, you know, to obey her master like that. Um, I think she is uh, proving a point with that. But the problem is, I think Lucentio is taking it like really seriously. He's like, Mm. oh yeah, man, that'd be great if my wife would do that too. And Bianca's like, nah, I'm I'm good. Nah, I'm good. Yeah. But also, you know, even before that, the problems that we see with Bianca, when, when you guys were saying earlier that she turns out to be not that cool, um, I was thinking it's because she's, she won't banter. She won't mm. play the wit games that, that they all, they all want to play, right? Like the, the guys are sitting around, they're having this, you know, conversation full of puns. And uh, Petruchio, I think, tries to pull Bianca in and she says, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to participate. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Um, even the widow, I think, uh, plays a bit, she and Kate, but then Bianca is like, Oh, I'm, I don't, I'm not interested. It seems, it seems that's what she's saying. So it's, it's not as attractive, you know, to have her around as it would be to have Kate or even the widow around. Why do you think she doesn't engage in that banter? 
I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Um, is it, is it kind of like, she's just not trained her. It's just not a habit of mind for her. It's clearly a habit of mind for Kate. Like, you know, this is the way that she's operated in the world and Bianca has been practiced in being sweet, amiable. Yeah. Bianca has yeah, been maybe abused so. by that language. That's true. Her that's whole true. Life, oh, that's a great point. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, so to engage in that. Mm. Is that that was recorded, right? You guys that... both saying I made a great point. <laughs> <laughs> Logan, edit that out if you don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't. Cut that, yeah. <laughs> no, and I think actually before that, that's maybe another indicator that Kate is not, you know, an obedient robot at this point. Um, she's bantering. Right. Which we see her bantering in the beginning, but it's, it's a little different now. It's mm-hmm. actually nicer. And, uh, but it's just as witty. It's just as smart. She hasn't given up her, her wit. Yeah. You know, it's so that, that's why I was destructive. Thinking. It's not destructive it's not at all. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. She's yeah, funny yeah. now. Like she's clever. She's not yeah. cruel. Yeah. It's like, she's learned to, uh, to, to live and in, in work in this world with uh-huh. these people that maybe she still doesn't even really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same people. But now she's too, right? That's powers. the same people. Yeah. yeah with the exception exactly. of Lucentio, right? He's new, but everybody else is people that are people that she was cruel to with her banter or wit in the first act. And now she's mm-hmm. clever with mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Nora, I want to um, pick up on something you just said. Um, you think that this is a ruse that. Uh, Kate and Petruchio are kind of putting on for everybody's, what are we going to call it? Like um, edification or maybe instruction or just their humor. You know, they're kind of, they've winked at each other and now Kate comes on and she kind of obeys Petruchio and talks about how good it is to be the obedient wife. I remember last episode, you put forward the, idea, I think we, we all talked about this, um, that much of the behavior between Petruchio and Kate could be interpreted as an act. They're putting mm-hmm. all of this on. And it sounds like you kind of sunk into that idea a little bit deeper just now in what you said. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think for, well, if, if we start with the premise that Shakespeare is a good writer, we have mm-hmm. to give him that, right? Because I'm going to grant you that. Yeah, I'm going to grant you. that premise. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. Should we take a vote? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's not up for vote. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's not an interesting story, right? Mm-hmm. And unless there's something more to it, then suddenly she's a robot because he starved her. That's mm-hmm. not funny, you know? Um, and, and I think, I think on the surface, it's easy to read this story that way. Uh, for me, I was the first time I came to it. I came to it after having um, performed actually in Twelfth Night. And at the end of Twelfth Night, someone is badly abused. Malvolio is, is badly abused. And the rest of the characters kind of laugh it off. And he kind of exits and says, I'll have my revenge on all of you. Mm. And then it's just over. And it's like, oh, that Malvolio, that's hilarious. He's been physically abused and locked in prison. And isn't that funny? Uh-huh. And I, right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm afraid that when, when I first came to this, I thought maybe this was the same thing. Um, like, oh, isn't it funny? We're going to beat this woman and have a horse sit on her and starve her to death. And then she's going to be a robot. Isn't that hilarious? Um, but I don't think, I mean, Shakespeare's a much better writer than that. And I probably should have known better, <laughs> but um 
yeah, I think at the end, Kate and Petruchio have come to uh, an understanding and they've, they've come to a, a loving relationship between the two of them. Um, but now they're back in this realm of people that have been horrible to mm-hmm, Kate mm-hmm. and that Petruchio has felt he's had to do a little chest thumping in front of for whatever reason, whether it's his own shortcomings or theirs. Um, and I do think they're doing the mirror thing. They're saying, okay, you say that it's great for a, a person to be tamed, for a person to be controlled or, you know, just marry her off and that'll solve all of her problems. Well, this maybe is what you're going to get from it. Because even though at the end, I don't, I don't see anybody standing up and applauding when Petruchio has won the wager. I don't see anybody saying, yeah, uh-huh. get her. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, you kind of see Lucentio, but I, I think that's maybe a, a bad look for him. I think, yeah. you know, him, him voicing his opinion that says, oh man, I wish Bianca would be like that. I think everybody's kind of looking at him like, really? You do? Yeah. If you were staging you know? this, the other actors on the stage yeah. would be like, he didn't get it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't think that's the point they're trying to make Kate and Petruchio together. Right. And I think this is the first time we really hear a lot from Kate. I mean, since the beginning of the play, really. She does go kind of quiet in three and four. She's responsive, but she doesn't really put forth a whole lot. Yeah. Right. She's more reactive until, until now. Um, so, yeah, I think they're kind of in it together. I think they're trying to make a point. I was thinking this week about when this play was written. It was written either 1589, 1590, or first performed, I should say, 1589, 1590. Why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant for reasons 1A and 1B. 1A, the most powerful person in England is a woman, Elizabeth I, right? Um, so if this is a patron, right. And a patron. Yeah. I think she's a patron at this point. I mean, I certainly later, but I think even at this point, she's a patron of Shakespeare's acting troupe. Furthermore, this is one B Elizabeth. The first has just defeated about a year earlier, the Spanish Armada Mm -hmm. and the threat that the Spanish Armada posed to the people of England was not minor. They thought that this was an indomitable militaristic force that it that like it could not be overcome. And the fact that Elizabeth I was on the throne when the Armada is defeated by the British fleet is a complete triumph for Elizabeth I. And we know we've lived through times that President Bush, President Clinton, President Obama have had military victories under their regime. And it's the high point, I think whether or not the war or not was um, just or unjust, it always bodes well for the leader when he or she protects the people, right? So I, I just can't help but think Shakespeare knows how much his audience is going to revere Elizabeth I, even though not everybody's in league with her about religious questions. You know, she kind of Mm. does that middle line thing. There, I would think, is going to be a strong sense of um, thankfulness and reverence for Elizabeth I at this time in England's empire. 
it's too early to call it an empire. Um, and so I just think, gosh, a play that just wholeheartedly insults Kate, this strong woman, and at the end, like presents her as defeated. That cannot be the solution that Shakespeare is presenting to us. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, I think so. I, I, th- I think the, I think what might confuse, con- confuse us as readers, not yeah. you too, but people who read Shakespeare, read this play is um, I think, I think Shakespeare is doing something different with the word tame than what mm. even the characters in the play think he's doing with the word tame. They think they're doing with the word tame, right? Like, the whole time you're reading it, the whole time they're using the word, it's always about making her obedient. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think what actually happens is that her passions are tamed, right? She's controlled by anger and hatred. Mm. And that's what gets tamed, which which I think, as you were describing her at the end, Nora, like she becomes a whole, healthy, healed person, right? She's, or how did, I think your phrase was, she was the best version of herself, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of her getting her her kind of passions, her emotion, her anger and hate in check. And so, so that she can have a witty, clever, bantering conversation with people that she had previously been abusive to when she can have, and who had been abusive to her. Right. right. To be fair. Right. And then she can have this kind of a conversation with them because all she's now a, kind of a balanced, har- harmonized person as it were. And I think that's really what, what is being put on display is the, that kind of attaining. Mm. But, but the word we hear the word and they use the word to mean something more like the taming of a dog, you know, the, the right. creating, you know, this perfectly obedient person. So to your point, um, Nora, that when Lucentio says something like, Oh, I want that. He's got, he's seeing the wrong side of the taming. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And kind of making himself into a little bit of a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what if, what if, what, Shakespeare is trying to do with this is, is to say, um, to, to his society, to the people around him, like, this is not to be desired. This is not the thing that it's cracked up to be instead of this taming, do this taming. This, Mm -hmm. this is a much better situation for everyone involved. Look at this couple. They're going, they're leaving the play happily and together. Mm -hmm. And this couple is not Mm -hmm. right? right. So, that being said, Nora, do you think that in the long run, the happier marriage is not Lucentio and Bianca, but Petruchio and Kate? Yeah. If you had, if you had to bet, is that the way you're going to bet? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think because of that, but I also think um, uh, because of the, the way that we see them, the manner that we see them leave. Uh, but I also think because um, going back to what we talked about in one of the previous episodes about um, about disguises and, and masks and, and things like that. Um, you know, Kate, <laughs> Kate has been on display the whole time. Mm. I mean, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's, it's all there. Right. And, and Petruchio too has been, has really shown himself quite a bit. Um, they've, they've shown themselves to each other and, and maybe it's just because they're not the primary characters, but we don't really see a lot of that with Bianca and Lucentio as well. Um, we don't, 
I wonder how much of each other they really know. I wonder if they, you know, their, yeah. their love was, was quick and, uh, uh, and, and kind of immediate. We don't see them really struggle much in the beginning. And I wonder if their struggle is yet to come. Yeah. Whereas Kate and Petruchio yeah. have kind of conquered their struggle already. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They suffered together. They fasted together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sat under horses together. They sat under the horses together. Exactly. <laughs> that was Grumio's report too, by the way, with the horse. So, you know. You, you remain a, a little bit skeptical. Unfaithful of, messenger. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. The unfaithful messenger. <laughs> Listen, I have to say that Gremio, the other the other guy, he he cracks me up in this act. He's hilarious, I think, because um, he's he's hardly in it much at all. But he he throws in these little one liners here and there, and um, I don't know, they just they make me laugh. Uh, it's a great part, I think. I've talked about on other podcasts how. Shakespeare wrote for an acting troupe. He was writing for the yeah. same actors over and over. Um, and so his lead actor, uh, Nora, do you remember his name? Uh, Richard Burbage, right? Yeah. Wasn't Richard Burbage? I think that's played that right. all of the, almost all of the lead roles. So he would have probably mm-hmm. played Petruchio. And I think we actually have evidence from leftover playbills about who played what roles. And, um, he had a great clown. Like every acting troupe had to have at least one really great clown. And that clown yes. probably played Grumio. That's my, that's my best guess. I yeah. love thinking about, I mean, that's part of the reason that Shakespeare's plays are so rich is that they, their cast kind of covered the panoply of human characteristics you know, there's the clown, yeah. there's the king, there's the queen, there's the princess, you know, the, and the, there's the, the faithful servant. Um, and so Shakespeare makes a real point of writing characters to really suit um, all of the different aspects of British society. Like one of my favorite characters is Kent from Lear. Kent oh, is just yes. this faithful soldier. Yes. He refuses to leave Lear, even if, after Lear banishes him from the kingdom, you know, and in Grumio, a great a role like that. It's such a great yeah. role. It's such yeah, a great it's, role. It's great. Yeah. I, I have a, you'll appreciate this as a fellow actor, Nora. I have um, a Google alarm set for a handful of roles. Should they ever come up in the Atlanta area? Um, Sir Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons is one. I don't know that I could actually play Coriolanus, but that's one. Like, who's going to actually do Coriolanus in Atlanta? But if I just have to go, I try. And and another one is Kent. Like, I just, I would love to be Kent, you know? So did you see the um the uh, the Lear with Ian McKellen where Kent was played by an older woman? No, it was excellent. Was it really excellent? Yes, excellent. Oh, I need to see that. Yeah, it was excellent. I need to see that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you guys, I want to make a little discursus here. Um, people listen to this podcast for a few different reasons. You know, some people just want to hear more about Shakespeare all the time. Some of you kind of know you're supposed to love Shakespeare, but maybe you don't, and you're here because you're trying. This feels like maybe like you're eating your vit- you're, you're taking your vitamins or something like that. There's a new book out that I think will help everybody grow in their affection of Shakespeare. The title is Good in Everything. The author is Josh Mayo. So 
Josh Mayo is an author and an educator, and he really believes that some of the disconnect for us who don't enjoy Shakespeare, um, it may be, it lies in our fundamental assumptions about what it means to actually read Shakespeare well. So his book, Good in Everything, is a short collection of eight essays. They're very playful essays inviting you into the long neglected tradition of literary meditation. This is the art of thinking with an author. In this case, the art of thinking with Shakespeare. So Josh Mayo talks about classics like Hamlet, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Matt, I'm right. He does a chapter on the taming of the shrew also, does he not? Yeah. Um, and you read this book. Um, so, so Josh Mayo kind of models an accessible approach to reading the plays, not just as academic subjects or scholarly artifacts, but as quarries of wisdom. So you will discover in the reading of the book insights about subject, subjects that are close to the heart of classical education, like poetic knowledge, imagination, and the cultivation of virtue. So for a limited time, you need to act quickly. The book, Good and Everything, is available at circeinstitute.org at a special pre-order price. Um, get on it. Let Josh Mayo's Good and Everything be your next Shakespeare resource. Okay, you guys, my closing question for you, um, what surprised you the most either about rereading the play or experiencing the play again or about our conversation? Is there anything that stuck out at you? Oh, I didn't expect this. It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, nothing comes to mind, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'll tell you, so I'll tell you, share something that, that is just interesting to me, I guess. Yeah. That I, I heard once from, an, from another teacher that was teaching this play that um, she read the whole thing as a, as a story of Christ and the church. So, oh, wow. Petruchio is Christ and Catherine Kate is the, is the church. And it's, it's um, like the whole thing is, I, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to recall what she said and I don't think she ever went into any great detail. She didn't go through it like line by line or anything, but, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's this, this sense of which like Christ does things for us, but then we misinterpret them or, or interpret them as like, um, you know, th- bad things are happening to us, but it's really all for our good, right? It's all mm. these things working together for our good. And that, and that, you know, in the end, then we would be, we would be, you know, healed of our, of our sin and our disobedience and whatever, and become a more whole person. I'm, I don't, again, I don't yeah. know how yeah, to yeah, express yeah. it, but yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I, I don't know that I thought about it until the very end when she gives her speech. Like when I was reading her speech and I don't even know what in the speech made me think of it, but when I was reading Kate's speech or closing monologue, that's when this teacher's theory popped into my head. And I was like, mm. Oh, interesting. And you know, wish I would have remembered that and could have looked for it along the way, but yeah. 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 Nora, anything surprise you going through it again? Anything about our discussion? I mean, the discussion definitely helped me, uh, wrestle with it a lot. I still think it's, it's difficult in, um, in a modern setting, but I think it's probably because Shakespeare is a good writer and he has good things to say and, um, they have to be 
you know, worked for a bit. And I I think this is easier to approach as a piece of literature than it is to approach for a performance. um, Say more about that. Why? Yeah, because, you know, you have the opportunity to sit and talk about it and to kind of dissect it and think about when was this written and who was the ruling monarch Mm -hmm. and all of that. And you don't have that in a performance. I mean, you could do a director's note, but that would be, you know, maybe a novel instead of a a page. Um, So, yeah, I mean, when you're presenting it and and you don't have the back and forth of ideas like, well, maybe Petruchio meant this or maybe he meant that you you have to make the decision. Um, You have to make one decision and, and go with it follow that line throughout the story. Um, and I think it can be done. I think, uh, I have, a I have a much more optimistic view of it now than I did before. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's still a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. but it's a good one. It's, I think mm-hmm. it's a, a worthy challenge to undertake. I still can't think of a, of a, a way to set the play other than when it's written. I can't think of another time period or setting, but, um, without but I'm going to keep trying like gross without changing. Yeah, yeah. Without changing it substantially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's okay yeah. uh, because if you change the setting, it, you, it necessitates changing other things. Um, yeah. I, I, I like it a lot more than I did. And Nora, am I right? Are you teaching the play this year? I'm going to be teaching it in the spring. Yes. Okay. So you've got a few months before yes. um, you get together with your students. It'll be really interesting to hear what, what grades will they be? Uh, they're ninth graders. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to hear how they take to the play. I, I mean, the ninth. Yeah. I'm looking years, forward to it. Those are combustible. That's a combustible age. At least You're telling me. Way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, I experience that every day too. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Um, but let me say something first, if I can. Um, the uh, I, I, when I when you asked the question, question, Tim, I was thinking of it specifically. Like, did I see something? I, anyways, I don't. know. I think I misinterpreted your, or misunderstood mm-hmm. your question, or I want to answer it in a different way because there were um, there were plenty of things that came out to me from the conversation, like not things that jumped out of me necessarily as I was reading it, but then stuff that jumped out through the conversation like um that the the stuff that the the, like nora when you brought the 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 mirror thing like we talked about the mirror thing with the introduction um at the beginning but then when you brought it back up like i I didn't for some reason didn't carry it through the whole play you know and when you brought it up again there with with some of those those dialogues that was like kind of mind-blowing for me like Mm. i i think it i think it it sheds a lot of light on the play. It shed a lot of light on the play for me in those, in those moments. Um, so I thought that was, uh, that was kind of a, a neat surprise for me along the way. Um, I mean, among other things, that's just a good example of it. Um, but I, I have a question about like the, the, the rule of what's the word I'm looking for? Like the rule of interpretation, right? Like you talk mm-hmm. to, you, you know, you have a conversation, um, Tim, you probably run into this on your other, on your other podcast, right? You're reading a novel and you're having a discussion with, you know, literary people about the novel. And then, you know, you, people will offer interpretations of something that happens in a novel. And then there's like rules that govern whether that interpretation is possible. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think the same thing is true with lots of stuff, right? Like the epic poems of Homer and, and, mm-hmm. um, and Virgil, if, if we count his as an epic, um, just kidding. And then, uh, you know, there's rules <laughs> with poetry. Like I've had poetry people get mad at me because I didn't follow some rule of poetry, the interpretation that I didn't know. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, I just wonder like, 
because I think a lot of the people that I that I would have conversations with about Shakespeare typically interpret it as if it's just an, a novel, right? Like they follow the same rules that they apply to the mm. novel and then they apply here. And I see that a lot, right? Like most people learn how to read with a not with novels. So then they take the rules of, of interpreting novels and they apply that to every other piece of literature, every other kind mm-hmm. of literature, except for maybe poetry. Um, so I'm, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to put this out there and I know I'm super simplifying the rule, but then just tell me like, yeah, how badly or whatever. <laughs> um, is it, it, is it legitimate or to what extent could it be legitimate to say that if an actor can pull it off, it's a legitimate interpretation? Huh? Like if I can add a wink, if I can add a gesture, if I can add a huh. tone of voice, if I can add a sarcastic element to it, right? Like, does that then make it a valid interpretation? I, again, I probably like the addendum to the rule would have to be, Insofar as you can carry it through that, that character can. That's exactly what I was going to say. Play, right. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, I kind of think that's actually a good rule provided that the actor is, can make a coherent tapestry out of his character, you know, like with all of the actions that the actor is performing because i can i can absolutely imagine especially scenes from this play where uh kate or petruchio takes the actor playing those roles takes some action to kind of mitigate the the dangerous parts of this play that we've spent so much time talking about sure that are Ill, i think i would say they're illegitimate because they're not in keeping with the rest of the play and they might assuage our worries about the play but I don't, but I do think that you would be breaking the kind of integrity of the play, if that makes sense. Nora, what do you think? Yeah. About yeah. I, I agree. I think maybe that the, um, that the impetus is more on the director than the actor, um, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the director is the one that's you know responsible for telling the complete story. Right. And then of course Great they, point. they come to the, to the, uh, motivations of the actors together, right? Like the actor and the director work together on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think if you can, if you can find it in the text and it's a through line all the way through, um, but the other, the other element that you really have to get is um, you ha- the, the audience. You have to be able to take the audience with you um, because, uh, you know, I, I've always thought that the audience is the final cast member, um, that the show really isn't complete until the audience is there um, because it's a living, breathing, reacting. Um, and it's not just like, did I land that laugh? Um, you know, you, you can, I mean, Tim, I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you feel them uh, yeah. being tense with you or tense against you, even yeah. if, you, if you're the adversary. Right. Um, and so if, if you have the audience and, and you can feel it as an actor, you know, you, you've got them um, and you can feel it when you don't too. Yeah. That, that feels yeah. bad feels really bad. <laughs> um, but if, if you've got them, it, whatever the choice is, uh, and as long as it's supported in the text, um, yeah, it's, it's legitimate. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let me just flesh out an example for a second. Mm. All right. So I have Petruchio and Kate and they're both, they're both presenting the line. I mean, presenting the story as this is a, this is a, a thing that they're in on. Like she's agreeing to be shrewish 
extra shrewish and then not right. And he's a, he's portraying it as like, he knows, she knows, and she knows, he knows, and they both know that they know yeah. this is something they're doing. Um, then another, another set of actors presents, performs the same play, but in this one, he's the, he's like actually trying to be the tough guy or not tough guy, but the bro, you know, he's like trying to impress his bros and she's kind of begrudgingly forced into this because her dad married her off to him. Right. Um, and then, but then at the end, that's all overcome, right? Like he, he converts, she converts and they're in love, whatever. Right. Both, if both, if actors could pull off both of those presentations, both of those would be legitimate interpretations. But, yes. but then, but if I add the, if I add the audience thing that you just said, Nora, mm-hmm. okay. So the audience has to, cause it's a living, breathing thing. The audience has to go along with it. Right. So first two actors present us as this is a, a ruse that we're in on together. We're doing this to everybody else around us. Right. Friday night, they play the, they play the perform, they do the performance and they both break a leg. Oh, I just wanted to say that. And the audience <laughs>, laughs and laughs and laughs and loves it the whole way. Saturday night, they go back out there again. The audience is flat. Hmm. So th- th- like, it's a good, pre- I mean, good. And, and, and all other things being equal they they performed it equally as well. Right. But the audience changed. Sure. Sure. Does that make, does that make the interpretation bad? Does that make just the, the play itself was a failure? How does that work? Like, how would you, I want to know what Nora thinks about this. I oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm really okay. curious. All right. Uh, well, when I say audience, I mean uh, as a whole. I mean all of them together. I wouldn't say individual ones. Throughout but yeah, the I mean, whole run. Okay. Through the whole run, sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I would say that if if that's the case more often than not, then yeah, you should probably revisit your interpretation. Mm-hmm. I would think, yeah. I, I think it was not received well. And um, and I do think that that that's a that's a tough pill to swallow, especially as the person on stage or backstage. Backstage is worse. Um, that you've that you've done a thing, you've taken the chance, and it, it kind of fell flat. Yeah. Um, and they didn't go with you. But I, you know, you have to be able to to answer that honestly. I think. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think. It's, it's been tempting to me sometimes. You get a great audience on Friday night and on Saturday night you have an audience and they, they don't laugh and you yeah. feel like, hey, like we're bringing it. Why are you guys not laughing? And there's yeah. so many factors that go into it aside from like the digestion of each individual audience. Truly. But, but also, you know what I've noticed? If you get someone who laughs early in a comedy, an audience member who laughs early in the comedy, it gives everybody permission. And oh, it's yeah. like they become the emotional leader. Whether They don't even know it, but they become the emotional leader of the whole audience. And everything kind of grooves then. Every, yes. like The audience feels they have permission to laugh. The laugh really helps the cast. They give more. The audience receives more. It's just great. But if you don't have that person who's going to laugh at the beginning of the show on Saturday night, it right. can dampen the whole experience for everybody. And you're like, what went wrong? That audience sucked. Well, yeah. no, they didn't really suck. They just like, didn't know yeah, they you had can't, permission. You can't blame the audience. No, you that's can't. Not, yeah, you that's can. not legitimate. No. Right. 
In fact, it's really funny because um, I'm I'm in the middle of producing a, a show right now, and we have an extended show tonight. We had to extend. Oh, because you guys were going to yeah. close last. We did. Night. We so closed. this is a great sign. Like you yeah. extended the run. Congratulations! And interestingly enough, our second show Friday we opened and it was a bang. It was awesome. Yeah. Saturday night was kind of dead. Mm. It was it was not great. We had about half the size of the audience, and they were quiet. Mm. Um, and so at that point, it's like. Did we get lucky Friday? Did we get unlucky Saturday? What happened? But we continued the run and yeah. all of the other shows have been fantastic. And in fact, it's grown because of word of mouth because it's you absolutely know, fantastic. really funny. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's great. So then I would take the audience as a whole for this show has been wonderfully receptive. And, um, you know, I, I call it a win. Um, yeah, but I, I've, I've been on the other side, too. So when you come to the end of the run and you're like, ooh, that glad that's over. Glad it's done. Yeah, right. Would it, would it be fair to say, uh, sorry, I don't want to drag this out too much longer, but <laughs> I'm just fascinated by theater. Um, the uh, Would it be fair to say that, in, okay, so in the sense that the play is a living, breathing organism, is that, that's how you said it? I said the audience was, but. Oh, the uh, audience is a living, breathing. Yeah. I thought you meant the whole performance with the audience was living and breathing. I think, well, that's probably like it fair. Is, as an artifact including all of those elements, it is kind of a living, breathing. Yeah. It's not, it's not static. Is that what you mean? (sighs) Right. Right. So I I guess I'm wondering then is like, is that true when you look at the whole run, the way you've been describing now, or could you say like this performance with this audience is one breathing, living, breathing organism, this performance with this audience is one living, breathing organism. And that the, the success here and the failure here are not, one doesn't reflect on the other or on, or on any other performance mm. of it. Right. Like just this one was a failure and this one was a success. And for all the things, that's come up, whatever, probably a, that's probably a good way to look at it, especially if you have a performance after the one that was a dud, you know, it's it, what I heard you saying, Nora is um, if you're going to kind of take your bearings on the success of the show, you can't take it from just one audience on one performance. Right. But you but the measuring stick is all of the audiences during the entire run. That's your measuring stick, not just Saturday night, not Thursday night, not Sunday afternoon, but the totality of the audiences. Sure, but but I think to Matt's further point that you know, it the slate is clean every performance. Yeah. You have to start again, right? Because it's a new relationship with a new person, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, the uh, the the missing the last cast member is a different person every night. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, tonight we have our encore performance and uh, it's, it, you know, that they still have to bring it. They still have yeah. to, to send their, their best because this is a new person. This is a new audience member to, to engage. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Even, even if some of the, um, even if some of the individuals are repeat uh, patrons, the, the aggregate, you know, the, the whole is, is different. Yeah. Have, have you guys ever read Dorothy Sayers, Mind of the Maker? Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. I like it a lot. I just finished it today. Oh yeah. And it's, I mean, it's all of her, almost, almost all of her examples are about theater. Really? Uh, yeah. And the mind of the maker yeah. is the mind of the person writing the play and then uh-huh. putting it on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but, but that's all an analogy for the mind of the maker, capital M God, mm-hmm. the, you mm-hmm. know, the Trinitarian God, right. the creator. And so it, it, She's drawing. I mean, I don't. I just. I. I found it fascinating. But I'm. You know. I don't. 
I don't write plays. I mean, I'm going to be Petruchio in your, when you do, (laughs) I mean, I'm going to try out for it anyways. Can't assume that I'll get it, but you know, break a leg. Hey, can I tell you guys just a quick theater story that kind of bears on this conversation we having about kind of like, you know, the influence that an audience has, or just in this instance, the influence that one audience member has. I was in a play, nor I wonder if you know the play called The Rabbit Hole, won yes. the Pulitzer in 2007. Yes. Do you know, you know the play? Yeah, we've done it. My, my Have you really? Done it. Did, mm-hmm. did you act in it? No, I did not. Okay. No. I got it's cast. so good. It's so good. It's it is excellent. absolutely wonderful. Won the Pulitzer, I think, in 2006, maybe, for best play. Um, it's a story about a husband and wife who lose their son. I think their son is 10 years old. Before the play begins, the son runs out into traffic and is hit by a car. And it's the story of them trying to keep their marriage together. And it's a really heavy play, but it's laced with like really excellent comedy. So it kind of keeps the play from just becoming really, really dark. I was cast as Howie, the husband. Um, Becca is the name of the wife in the play. And in our first scene together, it's eight months after our son has died. I've just made this meal for my wife and we're sitting on the couch. <laughs> By the way, this is the first play I was ever in. I was, I didn't know anything about what I was doing in my Whoa. very first you played scene. Howie I played in your Howie. first Howie. I played Holy Howie. Cow. Very oh first scene is I'm on a couch with Becca. We're right next to the audience. It's a really small black box theater, like 120 seats. So it was That's a how we did it too. Fantastic, excellent way to. I love that format of it. Yes. So we're on the couch, and I am like attempting to get my wife to sleep with me. Because she hasn't slept with me in eight months because she's mourning over the death of her son. So I'm kind of like massaging her shoulders. I can't believe I did this as my first play. Anyway, and um, she says, oh, I see what you're doing. And I say, what? And she says, you're trying to seduce me. And I say something like, yeah, how long has it been? It's been eight months. And she says, but who's counting? And I say, I am, I'm counting, you know, like we need to try to get back into it. So like fifth performance, we're saying those lines and she says, oh, I see what you're doing. And I say, she's, and I say, it's been eight months and a woman in the audience, (laughs) I mean, she was like four rows away. I said, it's been eight months. And the woman in the audience said, oh my God. She was so disgusted by that line, so mad that I almost turned and looked. I like I, I, I'm sure that I flinched. You know, terrible, yes, breach of protocol. (laughs) (laughs) And we kept going, you know, when we finished the scene. And I went backstage, and the woman who was playing Becca, I was backstage with her. I was like, okay, so I have to fight you and somebody else in the audience also tonight. You know, yes, I've got to exactly. fight both of you guys tonight. And I felt that woman the entire That's night. It. She was set against me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which in some ways was a tribute to the success and the power of the play because mm. genders, yes. in, in my experience, genders took sides in that play. The men sided mm. with the husband, the women sided with the play. And I thought it was part of what made that play so incredibly powerful is that like, there's a rift in the audience from the curtain, you know, yeah, we're kind of each morning in these different ways. Yeah. Anyway, the thing that I think I learned the most, um, and I'm not just saying this, I mean this sincerely 
is I didn't know how this was going to go. Matt, you had been on a podcast that plays the thing before, nor we would never had you on before. And there's always this kind of risk that there's no chemistry. Um, I wasn't worried that you guys were not going to have thoughtful things to say. I was pretty confident about that. But the chemistry was has been such a delight that I really want to bring you guys back next year. We will talk off the air about what we might bring you guys back for, but this has been so much fun. I want to thank each of you. And we do have one more episode, the Q and a episode. And I just want to say, listen, um, if you've been listening to this show, you can join the conversation online and get questions for us to discuss next week. Um, you can do that on the Facebook page through the close reads discussion group. If you're on Facebook, just type in close reads discussion group, and you will find all sorts of conversation about the books that we're reading on the kind of mothership podcast, which is close reads. And we'll also be taking questions for the plays, the thing podcast, which you are listening to. So if you've got questions, please pose them there and we will read them on the air. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at close reads pods and via email by writing to close reads podcast at gmail.com. We've also got an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening on behalf of Matt, on behalf of Nora. And we want to leave you with a little bit of fun. This is from an old show that I used to watch when I was a kid. They did a, it's Sesame Street. And we are about to have Cookie Monster introducing Grover playing Petruchio in The Taming of the Shoe. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And we will see you next time. Good evening and welcome to Monsterpiece Theater. Me, your host, Alistair Cookie. Tonight, Monsterpiece Theater proud to present classic play The Taming of the Shoe by William Shakespeare, famous podiatrist. Trust me. And now, The Taming of the Shoe. Oh, shoe, shoe, wherefore art thou shoe? Oh, there you are. Methinks I will put you on and walk to the Padua Mall. Unhand me, Grovero. Oh, what a shoe you are. I, Grovero, only want to put you on my foot and tie up your laces, you see? Just like my other shoe. Fie! I will not be tied to any foot. But shoe, I cannot walk to the Padua Mall with only one shoe, twould be embarrassing. Find yourself another shoe. I walk alone. Oh, fine. Go ahead, you shoe. See how forest you can get without a foot. Drat, <laughs> methinks this is harder <laughs> than me thought. I told you so, shoe. Please, can we not cooperate? Cooperate? Ah, yes. You needeth a foot, and I needeth a shoe. Let us walk together. All right, but watch your step. Fine, I shall be very, very <coughs> uh, careful. Ah. 
There! Aha, Gadzooks! I have tamed the shoe! Yeah. <laughs> Aha, there now, shoe! Is it not better when we cooperate? And now we can walk to the mall! Forget it! I don't want to walk to the mall! But, but, Shoo, I, I thought you were going to cooperate. I want to dance to them all. Dance? <laughs> okay, if we can cooperate and danceth to them all. Hitteth it! So goes the course of shoe love. This is Alastair Cookie of Monsterpiece Theater saying, To thine own self, the shoe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.